0: Welcome to the third episode of Journey with Purpose. My name is Randy Plummel, and today we speak with Joanne Chung, the founder of New Economy Workshop, a worker-owned cooperative who focuses on system and strategy design in the solidarity economy. I met Joanne many years ago when we were both at IDEO, and Joanne was working on this really interesting project called The City's Book of Play. This was in collaboration with GEL, the City of San Jose, and Knight Foundation. What's cool about this is that you can download the Book of Play in the show notes below, and it's free to use and to distribute. Jordan's going to talk a little bit about the complications around play in the city, but I'm super fascinated by how people use the city, especially for work and for play, and how to design engagement systems and processes to better hear and understand the residents' needs. Because right now, our engagement methods look a lot like an episode of Parks and Recreation. You've all seen this. It's nighttime, we're at a gym or an auditorium, you have to sign in for 30 second speaking slots, and the outcome is oftentimes yelling and some unruly behavior. So I'm always looking for examples of engagement tools and toolkits, which work to build common ground and to channel those more performative aspects of public testimony into something a little bit more useful. And now, here's Juan Chung on Cities and Play.
1: I've always been interested in cities as an trained as an architect and urbanism, um, but also grew up in cities all my life. I'm also an immigrant, so I always take a lot of curiosity whenever I come to a new place. So, cities for me has never just been a place. It's also always represented an ideal state. My hunch is that this is also what draws people to cities, is that it's always a place of aspiration. You have hopes for yourself, your family, you have a hope for a collective identity, that sort of thing. With that as context for my interest, the idea of play is interesting. Specifically, the project that you mentioned, it comes from a context of city governments wanting to figure out better ways of engaging with their citizens. With that as a motivation, you already see that it it carries a lot of baggage, right? It carries the baggage of a bit of paternalism, of knowledge being asymmetrically distributed. It carries the baggage of power residing with certain folks but not others, it carried the baggage of resources being in one place, but not the other. We could talk about play, you know, it seems very light, but it very quickly touches on a lot of deeper and more complex themes like these. Very quickly, it touches on very fundamentally how democracy manifests in a city scale. The goal was never be, hey, let's create community cohesion and let's think about new ways of doing community engagement through play. That was not the ask. The ask was, let's figure out a new way, honestly, for city governments to have a more productive, good relationship with its constituents so that people are actually being represented. It's a pretty lofty goal. And play is what I brought into a sort of an answer for that question. The reason why I was interested in it is because for me, even the framing of community engagement self fraught. A more desirous state that we want to get to, especially touching on this bigger theme of, well, cities are places of aspiration and places where people should be able to exercise their agency, then you shouldn't engage with your government when you're being told to, but express yourself in a more agentic way. So there's lots and lots of scholars who talk about play and games. That's a whole field of study, but there's an idea that I... Really like, which is that within the magic circle of a game, there are certain rules are very explicit and you can choose your roles. And then you can also be very collaborative with how you relate to people that you play with. And I think that idea feels like it turns the whole typical definition of community engagement on its head, it's not paternalistic. It's more about co-creation and it's about democratically deciding what the rules are and how you might be able to change them together. If the. Aspiration of democracy is to hold for such a diverse and large growing population, then we would also need to learn about things that are increasingly complex so that power of democracy could be wielded responsibly. This is where play came in as scaffolding for harder questions about democratic representation and how that manifests in a very undervested area of a city. I'm an immigrant. <laughs> I didn't grow up in the U.S. So my ability to be here is itself a privilege. I think being aware of our tendency to blame individuals for a systemic problem, certainly rethinking the whole idea of individualism, especially in America, I think that's important. I spent a couple months in China earlier this year, so I saw things from the other extreme. My recommendation is to avoid extremes. Be aware that exist and they're dangerous. But I try to seek out a balance where you consider the validity of different perspectives and resist the temptation of any one belief giving an easy answer. Tempting to swing between the pendulum of hyper individualism versus hyper collectivism. But having seen both extremes recently, I think it's always, it's a bit like the grass is greener when you're at the end of the pendulum, but probably healthier to look for something that's meaningful in between. I I think of play as not as any kind of end state, but it's a phenomenon that happens when people have agency, not just an individual, but um, let's say a community, a cohort, a constituent of people. So in that context, if you think about the state of the world, pre-pandemic or not, indeed, we live in an extremely rule-based society. But maybe another way of putting it is that There's a tremendous amount of bureaucratic systems governing every facet of everybody's life, right? It's what David Graeber writes about, the dead zones of the imagination. It's utterly not human. And of course, by definition, it's not because these are systems upon systems. In that context, there's not a whole lot of agency, especially for lots of folks who are disenfranchised by such systems. So you have these moments of rupture. And that's how I see the unruly behaviors. It's the phenomena that happens when you don't have agency, but where there's entropy. It's kind of interesting to frame the behaviors as unruly, because I think it actually puts the onus on the individuals, whereas that's more of a collective manifestation of systems Mm. being broken. Maybe these systems have not been very humane generally. So let's not talk about individual occurrences of looting or rule breaking, but more that how are these rules giving people agency or not? And how much agency do people have in if the rules are not conducive to their well-being to changing them? So on the one hand, if play is the phenomena That occurs when groups have agency, then, you know, you have these kinds of behaviors. That is the phenomenon that occurs when that agency is absent. I think play becomes conflated with ideas that it doesn't necessarily need to be conflated with, like childishness or not important or inconsequential or an indulgence. And I think it fell into that category because it had, become so almost totally commercialized. It happens generally, not because people are doing it of their own volition, but because they've bought something that lets them do that. Um, And that's not play. That's not the kind of idea that I'm talking about. So when that happens, though, you could criticize it by saying, oh, no, you, you bought the wrong thing for what we need. And I think in those circumstances, yeah, it's different, right? If you're paid to play versus not Or if you're paid to play as entertainment for somebody else's consumption. It's constantly shocking for me why adulthood means that you forego these wonderful things and these wonderful ways of relating to other humans. Kids do it all the time, but for adults, it's very rare. But yeah, if you look at kids in the playground, like, why don't people play like that more generally? When the phenomena of play emerges within a certain set of social relationships, then it's harder to critique that. And again, I think it's hard to talk about because at its best, it emerges within a context in which there's not really a bystander who's not participating. It's the opposite of the society of the spectacle. Like there's no spectacle. It's occurring within a group of people who are doing it with themselves. And the benefits are... Not for anybody else's benefit, nor are they coerced (laughs) into doing it. So maybe it's just pretty rare for that kind of social relationship to exist these days. We're more used to the norm of things happen because of some kind of power asymmetry manifesting. I don't tend to think about the idea of play so much. I think, again, it manifests as a scaffolding. I tend to think about what are the kinds of social relationships that exist or what are the more desired relationships that could be forged in order to advance certain causes. So if the cause is more community resilience or empowerment, then we need a different set of relationships than whoever has time showing up in City Hall. Being able to call a timeout means that you know the bounds of the gameplay. And these days, who knows what that is? (laughs) And... More often than not, you're stuck in it without even wanting to be. Again, back to the idea of agency. Is one aware of the game they're playing? Is it their game? Is it their rule? Are they okay with the rule? Is their play being used for some other ends without their consent, right? I mean, on social media, it's exactly the same thing. Play as such an intrinsically human phenomena can also be deployed (laughs) to a lot of problematic ends. In those cases, you could call timeout. Individuals could call timeout. I don't think that's going to change the system. You could go on what, digital detox or whatever, but that's not going to change how all the messed up things on every, practically <laughs> messed up things on every level. What I would advocate for is just more transparency around rules. The fact that I was doing that project as somebody who not, doesn't live there is already pretty problematic from my perspective. The fact that this is funded by a, very wealthy foundation at their mercy, but then there's no continued support or ways of sustaining the practice. The fact that there is almost a caste system within even a not really wealthy neighborhood of renters and owners, and they have very different motivations. I think a lot of these problems, especially the nonprofit industrial complex, are in extreme states in the U.S. So some of this is pretty particular to the American context. Though that being said, I think I've also spent a long time having this existential crisis of the idea of making people do blank is already pretty fraught. Like, I don't want to coerce people to do anything. Relationships are really difficult. And ultimately, we're talking about relationships between really disparate parties that constantly feel like a negotiation. Then, what is the point of sugarcoating it? Where I had, I felt like I had a little bit of a breakthrough was I realized it's less about thinking about Let's just focus on our relationship. But what is the thing that we're doing together? I think when I shift to thinking about learning and exchange of knowledge rather than exchange of pre-existing information, that for me was a breakthrough. So I'll give you an example. I built a chicken coop for a farm in West Oakland. It was all volunteer-based. There's no cash exchange in any of this, but there's lots of material exchange. in building something together with people that I don't people I don't know you build those relationships naturally like that is the phenomena that occurs the social phenomena that occurs while something is happening if you're only focusing on creating that social phenomena then you're talking abstractly about wanting to be together but you're not doing anything so the ability to do something and maybe playing games is one way but I think even better and something that's more sustained is building something that's useful for dignity it works so maybe there could be more support resources to do that kind of thing it happens naturally as a byproduct but if you only focus on it in an absence of context then it becomes negotiation based and you don't accomplish what you set out to accomplish My dream is more tool lending libraries like there are in Berkeley, more maker spaces, more community wood shops, more community gardens, these kinds of things where people can make stuff together. If you're doing something you love and where you're learning, of course you're engaged. Why would you want to be engaged for engagement's sake? It makes no sense. You can only be engaged when you're doing something meaningful. And that is the opposite of showing up to City Hall and. In negotiation mode.
0: I want to thank Jan Chung for her time. You can find her at the show notes and at neweconomyworkshop.com. That last part really gets to me. Engagement for engagement's sake gives false hope to residents that their testimony is useful, their time was spent wisely, and it's valuable feedback to the city. In my work, this connects to two problems that constantly come up. One, what's the right level of engagement? And two, how do we prototype in public? The first problem about the right level of community engagement is a super thorny issue because so many important projects get bogged down in what I think is kind of useless community engagement. Or the term, you haven't had enough community engagement is a way to kill a positive project. And this results in the project dying a slow death, or perhaps a quick one. It's been years since New York City has legislated the Manhattan Congestion Charge. People continue to litigate it, even after three giant binders full of environmental impact reports and constant community engagement. In San Francisco, CEQA, a law ostensibly used to evaluate how environment a project really is, is weaponized against bike lanes. All the while, projects which we know have negative climate effects, such as freeway widening, sail through without requiring any community input. I don't have an answer for this. I think it is a thorny issue and that we haven't gotten right. This leads us to a second issue, which is how do you prototype in public? I struggle with this because it connects with access and equity. It's one thing to build consumer product prototypes, give it to people and get feedback on it. It's a whole different thing to prototype and get feedback on urban interventions in the city's built form or even prototyping policy. I don't have answers around prototyping in public either. Part of best practices are to go where people are and to create different modalities of prototyping so that you can gauge the widest spectrum. But it's really part of what we do at Expedition Works is to try to figure out and explore resident engagement and design at the urban scale. So I want to thank Joanne and her time. I want to thank you all for listening to another episode of Journey with Purpose, episode three. If you like this... Please give us a review, smash the like button, heart it, share it with your friends. We are a small and independent operator, so your attention and your feedback is incredibly important. We, of course, would love for you to buy a pamphlet version of Journey with Purpose, and that's available for sale at jwp.news. We hope you have a good day. Be well.